You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Particularly when you get outside the U.S. to some of the Asia markets, the consumer is actually expecting to have some ability to have a direct conversation with you. And conversations don't work unless you can listen. That was Christiana Shi, former president of direct-to-consumer at Nike. Nike, of course, is arguably one of the most recognized brands in the world and one of the most valuable. And Christiana has a lot to say about direct customer relationships and more broadly about retail growth, which was the focus of her career for more than three decades. Christiana, along with Stuart Hogue, former vice president and general manager at Nike, recently spoke with McKinsey senior partner Brian Gregg on an episode of C-Suite Growth Talks, a McKinsey podcast, and we're pleased to share that episode with you today. Here's Brian's interview with Christiana and Stuart. Lots to discuss today with both of you. Uh, before we dive in, though, maybe we just start with telling our listeners a little bit about your backgrounds, you know, starting with maybe your work with Nike, the role that growth has played throughout your career. So maybe starting with you, Christiana, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I was in consulting for a long time, focused on retail and consumer, and Nike was one of my clients for at least 10 years. So when I decided it was time to move more directly into the retail sector, I joined Nike as the COO for direct-to-consumer. And it was a small part of the brand at that time. But during my time at Nike, I moved from running, I'd call the back of house for all of the DTC channels to leading.com during a time where we completely repositioned both the role of the business and the uh, just the technology of the business and went from there to becoming the president of all of direct-to-consumer, which at Nike includes the full price stores, Nike.com, the apps, and um, the Nike factory stores. And I would just say, Brian, growth has been a central theme in most of the work that I've done, both in consulting and at Nike, because either you don't have enough or you have more than you can handle. And um, they're both problems and opportunities at the same time. So it's 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 truly been um, quite an exhilarating journey to get to work on all sides of that issue. Love it, Christiana. And excited to dive into both sides of the growth problems. Stuart, let's let's head over to you. I'll focus on the, the Nike portion of my career. So I spent 15 years at, at Nike and um, I was part of the Nike Foundation, uh, the team that uh, launched an initiative focused on the idea of the girl effect, which is uh, investing in adolescent girls as one of the best and smartest ways to fight intergenerational poverty. But then I had the opportunity to meet uh, my colleague on the show, Christiana, who hired me to be her head of strategy when she was in that head of Nike retail, Nike DTC role. And uh, um, it was an honor and privilege to get to work alongside, work for Christiana and learn from her, one of the best mentors out there that I've ever had. And that really started my um, focus at Nike on retail footprint. From that role, I went on to lead a team at Nike called Marketplace Development, which was a, a global team that was focused on working with our retail partners on their consumer experience, both online and, and in their stores. And as part of that role, I uh, led Nike's partnerships, new emerging partnerships with digital marketplaces, uh, which was you know, a fascinating growth um, story at the time for Nike. And then from there, I led the Foot Locker business unit in North America, which is Nike's largest commercial wholesale account and, and team dedicated to that business. Excellent. And it's exciting to have you and Christiana. You could argue that Nike has become the world's leading innovator in the world of sport, right? I mean, now we're looking at a company with close to 80,000 employees, 1,000 stores worldwide. Clearly, growth is uh, 
is, is something that Nike uh, knows quite well. And you have both been at the center of that. What role does growth play for Nike and how has that changed over time? Christiana, it'd be great to get your sense of just the historical approach to growth at Nike. Sure. My first chance to observe growth at Nike was all the way back in 1998 when I started to work with them. And I would say that Nike identified then and identifies now as a growth company. In fact, if you go to the investor relations landing page at Nike, you're going to see a, a photo of Serena Williams and, this, and the, the phrase over the top, Nike is a growth company. So that's core to the identity of the brand. I think it's core to the aspirations the leadership team has. And it isn't um, growth with a little G, it's growth with a big G. So I think that that has been central to the company for a long time and how Nike creates value for um, all of its stakeholders. But the way Nike grows has changed a lot. In the past, Nike grew, like a lot of startups, very very haphazardly. It was letting a thousand flowers bloom. If Nike could expand to a new geographic market because there was a wholesale partner that wanted to carry Nike or stock Nike, it did. If Nike could launch a category, it did. And what that led to was a lot of growth, but it was diffused. And from a strategic point of view, it was very hard to get your arms around where the priorities were at any point in time and where to invest behind that growth. It also led to things like uncoordinated technology systems, um, supply chains that were um, isolated, almost stranded, um, and uh, investments in people and capabilities that probably didn't have the same potential as, as where Nike would have wanted to invest. And I think the change from that to today is a much more purposeful and, and strategic approach. You know, when I think about Nike and its its growth potential, I mean, I, I go back to the mission statement for the company, which is to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete in the world. And there's an asterisk on the word word athlete, which um, basically says if you if you have a body, you're an athlete. And the whole premise is that everyone out there on the planet is an athlete. And when you think about it in those terms, uh, there's still a lot of underserved consumers out there for for Nike to to create growth with, and I think that's been the secret formula of Nike's success is to to serve consumers, and and I think that has led to a lot of opportunities pursued. I think the the biggest um, growth pursuit for Nike right now is less around category and market expansion, and and it's more around having more of a relationship with their consumers. And by having more of a personal relationship with consumers, by being more engaged with them, being there for them on a daily basis, not on a yearly basis, uh, that creates more frequency and ultimately more wallet share. And I think that's fundamentally their growth strategy today. I think one of the big differences is those opportunities require significant sustained investment. And I think the realization from Nike leadership was we're not going to be able to do that unless we're willing to make trade-offs. And those trade-offs have to be done collectively and they have to be aligned against a goal. So that's where, you know, the strategic framework becomes really important. And, and I wonder, Christiana, given you part of your initial role was to really look at the, the back office and the back of house operations, what operationally had to change? Well, the short answer is everything. <laughs> everything had to change. A shift to digital, a shift in the marketing model and the, and the way Nike um, communicated with its consumers, and a shift to direct, meaning a larger percent of Nike's business was going to go through its own channels, Nike.com and the apps and the stores. I think one of the toughest changes I observed was actually around the, um, the supply chain. 
because from an end-to-end perspective, if you are vertically integrated in apparel and footwear, you set up your uh, your supply chain all the way from materials management through to distribution to the consumer. You're able to track one-to-one. It's things done in smaller scale. Nike had one big distribution center in Memphis. When push came to shove and capacity was constrained, Nike DCs would prioritize picking the orders for the wholesale partners, but the consumers were shredding us because their orders were arriving late to their home after doing new warehouse management systems, new um, forecasting allocation and distribution systems, new digital tools. Uh, that consumer direct supply chain is beginning to be an absolute competitive advantage for Nike. Compared to the other brands I work with now, Nike has gone from being out of the game to being one of the best. So it's doable. And Stuart, you saw the change in the ways certain parts of the organization had to operate. I think that's worth probably dwelling on for a minute. When I reflect on my time at Nike, the w- only thing that was ever constant there was change. The organization is is constantly transforming. And some people love to be part of that and want to be part of that. And that's, and that's hard, harder for others, you know? And so I self-selects for a certain type of uh, individual, certain types of teams who have a high resilience and adaptability. You know, I think it came from Phil Knight identifying market opportunities and wanting to transform the company constantly to, to meet those opportunities. You know, the, the company started out as a footwear company and realized that, you know, there was this huge potential to create growth in apparel. And that worked until we realized that we were divided by product lines and we weren't serving consumers holistically. It's around 2008 that we, we we should shift to a category model, right? And that's a way to serve runners head to toe or basketball players head to toe or serve the, the female consumer um, completely. And that was a, a great growth strategy until it wasn't, right? Until consumers wanted to not be served as a runner, but they wanted to be served as Christiana, who runs and does yoga and trains and loves Air Force Ones and has, you know, a son who who likes a certain sport team, right? And so that then challenged Nike, us, to trans- fundamentally change and transform the business model, not to a siloed, segmented category organization, but to an organization that's tuned towards serving consumers as Brian or as Christiana as, as in a one-to-one way. And um, that's a big kind of sweeping idea, but that you, you can only imagine the amount of um, organizational change that it takes to enable that. I mean, obviously it's a shift towards digital. It's a shift towards direct, but it's, sh- you know, developing analytics capabilities, new marketing capabilities. There's a, a sales force that had to transform and change and play a complementary role. So the, the whole thing was just massive in terms of its scale. And it's, it's still unfolding. I think Nike will be on this change journey for probably forever because that's how the company's wired. If I'm a listener out there and trying to do a, my own version of a change, what do I do first? Any sort of thoughts for our listeners out there who are dealing with their own transformation right now? Transformation is an ongoing process because you keep moving the bar. When I first uh, engaged with the company, Nike was a portfolio company, not a very balanced one, but it owned Bauer Hockey, Umbro Soccer, um, Cole Haan, Hurley, and Converse. And the only brand Nike still has that it bought externally is Converse. And then it has developed and grown the Jordan brand as a largely um, uh, unique brand. But that's it, because I think one of the changes along the way was Nike realizing we're not good at that. We we know what we know. We want to do what we want to do. We want it to be authentic and rooted in sport, and we want to narrow it. So it brings me to what I think is one of the most important keys, which is when you're starting on your next wave of transformation, what you stop doing is probably as important as what you start doing. You see that multiple times as Nike's gone through different strategic eras. In that era of uh, moving from being a portfolio company, they slowly and steadily sold off the parts of the business that were not core. That allowed more money to be invested in Jordan, in Nike, and in Converse. 
significantly more. When you see Nike shifting to being consumer direct, one of the things that, that Stuart saw firsthand was Nike began to prune the long tail of wholesale accounts that it had. And it stopped selling to some of them, or it revised or narrowed what it was willing to distribute through those partners. Again, that focus then shifts and allows a greater focus on a global set of priority accounts that Nike is growing with. Finally, when we were thinking of expanding digital, there were markets, there was a lot of noise and a lot of desire to take digital, but we prioritize. And so there are still quite a, a large subset of geographies that Nike serves more indirectly. And finding solutions to do that is important to continuing to grow. Well, hel helpful lesson on the power of prioritization and power of the to-do list, not just the to-do list. I'm wondering if we spend just one minute more on the idea of sustainable growth. What role does growth play in Nike's push towards zero carbon? and zero waste? Yeah, it's such, such an important question, Brian. You know, when I, when I joined 15 years ago, sustainability was an emphasis um, for the company, and it was really oriented around how we make product to ensure that we had you know, limited as much waste as possible. And then actually, when I started working with Christiana, we were really focused on the retail footprint, realizing that, you know, as you, you grow retail and you're managing thousand stores, uh, the energy requirements in that model, right? And so we were beginning to think our impact on, on the environment, what we could do to make real change. Um, and I think things have only accelerated then. And, 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 you know, when you talk about, well, why, what's the correlation between that and growth? There, it's in, in service of the consumer. I would say that sustainability used to be something that companies did because it was the right thing to do. And now it's something that our consumers are demanding. And in fact, it's oftentimes, if not the first read, it's the second read for a consumer. And it's, it's something that they expect. And so it's only more reason for why sustainability is on the top five priorities for the company right now. And favorite shoes is the Space Hippie, which is, um, it's got about 90% recycled, uh, uppers. The, the, the sole is made from Nike regrind the box. They're trying to innovate around that double box problem where you have a box within a box when you order something online and now it's just within one. And, you know, and what was great about it is they used it, they positioned it as one of the highest heat, coolest sneakers that uh, Nike had and created real consumer energy around that. And so I think that's kind of a symbol of what's to come for Nike is um, this correlation of sustainability and cool and the importance that it plays for our consumers. Very exciting stuff. It does sound easy from some standpoints, but we know it wasn't always easy. What challenges do you see arising as companies continue to pursue growth? Well, I'll speak specifically to some challenges related to pursuing growth enabled by digital, because that I, I don't think I know too many companies that aren't trying to harness digital in some way to drive growth, whether it is on the manufacturing and production side or the insight side or the marketing side or in a direct-to-consumer context with e-commerce. The One of the biggest challenges that I've seen is that whatever you are investing in digital at the start of your transformation is probably what you will have to invest years two, three, four, five, and on into infinity. And I can understand why that is an unpleasant shock to a leadership team or to a board, because when we were replatforming at Nike, we knew that that was going to cost us a boatload of money. And it did. But then like two and a half, three years later, we needed to move to the cloud. So we had to replatform again, right? And as we were doing that, we were launching apps. Each of those apps have to get wired back into your core tech stack and, and work on a global basis. Again, for anyone 
anyone who's doing a digitally led transformation to just understand that the commitment is for that investment to be sustained because you fall behind the adoption curve, you fall behind consumers, you fall behind the most efficient and, and cost effective technologies if you don't maintain it. You have got to continue to find room in your PL to afford to invest in those technologies. Even as you're driving a transformation where you're very focused on new strategic initiatives and growth, you want to make sure that you're holding your teams accountable to continue to look for operational efficiencies, to continue to look for those things that you don't need to invest in, to continue to focus your dollars where they matter. But finding room in the PL is the key to allowing you to invest in any growth initiative, but it's particularly critical when you're talking about a digitally led transformation. Especially if it's investment opportunities there, how do you do it in the PL? Stuart, I'm wondering just from that challenge and that particular yeah. point of finding the investment dollars or making sure the PL fits with the, the growth avenues you're choosing. Probably the biggest change that Nike's gone through was that shift from working with retailers to going direct to consumer. There's a really healthy and, and, and large business um, and investment dollars that are generated from having big retail partners who um, can serve consumers at scale. And, you know, you increasingly you're, you're a Identify, identifying opportunities to uh, invest in your digital while keeping that business um, growing in, in a healthy in a healthy way. So, I think that was constantly a um, debate around how fast to go and how to keep that balance right of supporting our team that operates um, really big and important retail partners. And there are a lot of digital capabilities that are required to do it. People think of digital as a department. And they want to grow that department. And it's move out of that mentality. And the sooner you see digital as a way of operating, serving consumers and evaluate which have the which of the opportunities have the greatest ROI. If you can find ways to make one dollar work in two places, that's also pretty important for being able to afford the transformation. And in Nike's case, that meant that when we were investing in digital capabilities and direct to consumer, for instance, better photos of our product, we could make those available to wholesale partners. If we were investing in better content, we could share some of that with wholesale. If we were investing in new tools for our sales force um, and develop training, we could share the training and we did with Nike's partner retailers. So if you can look for ways to make your investment work twice as hard, those will help you afford it over the long haul. Christiana, you've been on boards in the consumer space your whole career. What bold growth moves should other consumer brands be looking at right now? Building direct relationships with your consumers at scale is one of the most important opportunities for a consumer brand. In the past, there really wasn't much opportunity unless you were one of these digital startups to really begin and build these relationships directly with consumers. But the technologies there and the marketing channels are there and this the social outreach vehicles are there. And particularly when you get outside the U.S. to some of the Asia markets, the consumer is actually expecting to have some ability to have a direct conversation with you. And conversations don't work unless you can listen. If you are not putting together both um, the marketing capabilities, the strategic capabilities and the technology capabilities to have a dialogue with your consumers, you're going to miss out. And that doesn't mean you have to sell directly to the consumers. That will work for some brands, for others. I think what we're trying to say is divorce the notion that having a direct relationship with the consumer means you have to have a direct consumer commerce business. And instead, think about it from a relationship and an ecosystem point of view and how you will leverage that relationship and all those insights to the benefit of the growth of your business and the consumer's satisfaction. Christiana, you have extensive experience as a speaker and author on women's leadership, career development across the board. Given all the changes in the workplace right now, how do you expect the workplace to change to enable more women into 
leadership positions. I think this is one of those multivariate equations where many things have to change at the same time. That is true for any improvement in the diversity of a leadership group, whether it is on gender, ethnic background, or it is on sexual orientation, or it is geography, pick your dimension. The statistics show that the more diverse a leadership group is, the better the outcome from a shareholder and a stakeholder value the company is going to generate. Studies have also shown the more women there are in leadership, the better the financial outcomes there'll be of these companies. So we don't really need the data anymore. I'm hoping we're past asking ourselves the question of whether it's worth it. It's about continuing these efforts to raise awareness, to bring in new sources of talent, to upskill and identify talent that needs additional support to be successful, and to review your retention, advancement, and promotion processes for hidden biases. And that's what it'll take to get more women in the in the C-suite. Stuart, in your time at Nike, what did you observe happening there to advance equitable opportunities for a diverse workforce? As with many companies, Nike had its moments when it looked composition of its team and how it was manifesting its culture. And there's a huge emphasis on it, promoting women and people of color and attracting new talent into the, into the leadership ranks of Nike. And I think that's when you start to see that leadership change, which then translates to the second part of DNI, which are, which is the inclusion piece and the culture, right? When you can create an environment when people feel like they can say what they need to say and they can come to work and be their best selves. And one very specific example in Nike's commitment to it is um, they offered the opportunity for every single VP to go through a graduate level program on authentic and inclusive leadership, a semester long graduate program where people went deep into how they're showing up at work to really understand the nuances behind creating that inclusive environment. I've been proud and impressed by its willingness to take a clear look at where we are, where we were today, and what needs to happen for the right change to happen. Christiana Stewart, just want to wrap up our time together today by asking a few rapid fire questions. The biggest myth to hear for all of us to be aware of that uh, you, you can remember in your in your past role as leading uh, a growth agenda at Nike? It's not about how you make the big decisions some of the time. It's how you make the small decisions all the time. There's hundreds of decisions each week that you're getting asked to make. Your strategy is actually determined by those thousands of smaller decisions that you and all the folks all the way down to the front line are making. So um, you think that it's, you know, the captain up there with a big steering wheel that they're turning. And the reality is it's how well you're communicating the strategy and the goals and keeping that alignment all the way down to the front line. So that when the small decisions get made, they're made in line with the strategy and those things accumulate on a daily basis. Right. And that'll actually tell you whether you're going to get where you want to go. Stuart. Okay, well, it's related, but not the same. And it's related in that growth is not a strategic plan. And it's not more investment dollars. It's so much more. And it's, I think it's fundamentally about culture. It's about leaders with vision. It's about team. And it's about the humility to know that you're not perfect. And you've got to be relentlessly self-critical about where you are today and what that takes to grow for tomorrow. I think it's ultimately the never-ending ambition to serve people better. And it's not about revenue. It's about customers and making it better every single day. What's on top of your reading list right now? Any book you'd recommend? I love both. Michelle Obama's biography and then the Barack Obama book that came out this year. When you listen to people's perspectives on a very public life, I always find those kind of um, autobiographies to be fascinating. But the other book that is a perennial top book of mine, even though it's not one I just read, is called The Checklist Manifesto, which is by an author named Atul Gawanda. 
who is a Renaissance man who uses more of his brain than any of the rest of us even have. He's a surgeon. He writes for The New Yorker. Um, he's a policymaker. And the Checklist Manifesto was a book that he wrote after he created the surgical checklist that is now used when any one of us ever goes into surgery. This book elevates the importance of a simple checklist and how it can literally transform the way work gets done. I always recommend it to teams when I'm starting with new groups that they read it. I'm famous for being a nerd for books. And I constantly give books to my team. The most influential book for me in my career, it's also not a, a new one. It's by a guy named Chris Bears Brown, who's a, a friend and mentor. And it, the book's called Shine. Chris runs a company called Upping Your Elvis. And it's all about this idea that everyone has creative potential within them. It takes effort and focus to get to that place where you can bring energy into a conversation. I think the best leaders are, are energy givers. They're, they're the ones who create that environment where people can feel it and they can, they want to be part of a team because of that energy. And his book is all around that. You can do to be in that right physical and mental state to be the best you possibly can be. That was Brian Gregg interviewing Christiana Shee and Stuart Hogue, former executives at Nike. Thanks for tuning in. Please join us again next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.